0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Asia where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Dr. Yang Yangbin Chen, a senior lecturer in Chinese program, Department of Languages and Linguistics at La Trobe University. Today I will be interviewing Colin Macaris, an emeritus professor at Griffith University, and a specialist in Chinese culture and society. He has been researching and teaching in China since the 1960s, where he was a witness to the start of the Cultural revolution. Welcome, Colin. Thank you very much. You have been studying uh, Chinese and researching China and Chinese for more than uh, six, seven decades. That's amazing. Can you tell us your first contact with China
1: at that time, uh, well, the first time I went to China was in 1964. 64. But of course, I had heard about China a lot before that, and I'd got interested in China in the late fifties already. Mm. But in 1964, I had an opportunity. I was living in England at the time, and uh, I did a degree on Chinese history. Actually, I studied the Tang Dynasty, yeah. and uh, I got an opportunity while I was in Cambridge to uh, go to china i went to china with my wife and my first son was born there we went there in august 64 yeah we taught at what was then the beijing foreign languages institute yeah. beijing wagyu UCN.
0: Oh, okay and yeah. now
1: it's the beijing foreign studies university beijing wagyu das yeah? Oh, be yeah and um, i've been there and taught there many times since mm-hmm. and i still go there I, I probably will go again next year
0: Okay. At that time, I assume very few uh, Westerners living or studying in China, even in Beijing. So what's your first impression about Beijing and China uh, broadly?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, it is true. Not very many Westerners were living in and working in Beijing in those days. We lived in a place called the Beijing Friendship Hotel, the oh. Yoi one, yeah. which actually is still there. It's very close to the Beijing Foreign Languages Institute or Foreign Studies University, just round the corner. It's about uh, half an hour's walk. We taught English. My wife and I both taught English, and we regarded as foreign experts. Yeah. What was my impression? My impression was that I found it very strange because in those days... What the West had been told about China Mm. was that it was almost like a different planet. Mm -mm. You know, it was very, very strange. And um, here in Australia, it was regarded as the, you know, um, the foreign menace, the Mm. red uh, and yellow peril. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, everyone was afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, we at first were a bit afraid too. Mm -hmm. But I mean, as we got to know the country and as we got to know the people, Mm. we found it was quite different. It was uh, not terrifying at all. I found that that my Chinese colleagues, well, they were very friendly and I found them very good people and uh, they had their own hopes and, and wishes and dreams, just the same as the rest of us. Yeah. Um, now, what is true, though, of course, is that they were very ideologically driven. Yeah. They were very um, much into the revolution mm-hmm. and they were very much into the worship of Chairman Mao Yeah. and they didn't challenge anything Chairman Mao said or, yeah. or um, disagree with him on anything like that. And the texts... I remember very clearly in um, January '65, we were brought to the um, study of the dean, and he explained that we were going to have to be more use more revolutionary texts from now on. Yeah, and I was a little bit alarmed by this at first. Yeah, and we used the works of Chairman Mao and things like that. Yeah, I know down with the American imperialism. That's right, imperialism. yeah, we had that. <laughs> that's right. Down with American imperialism, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Long live Chairman Mao. That's right, yeah. That sort of thing, yeah. So you
0: started uh, from uh, 1964, and that's the first part of
1: uh, your stay Last for how long? Uh, well, we stayed until 66, September 66. Wow, that's... That was just yeah. after mm. the Cultural Revolution had begun. Mm. And I mean, I'll never forget, we went to Beidaihe for a summer holiday in yeah. 1966. And then when we came back to Beijing, the whole city was in turmoil. Oh. The Red Guards were running, you know, amok, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, not only that, but there were people, older people, who had placards around their necks saying, I'm a counter-revolutionary revisionist and, and things like that. And I was a bit shocked by all that, I must mm. say. Yeah. And also the churches... Um, were closed, oh. and I think some of them had been ransacked. Mm-hmm. They smashed the four olds I know, yeah. and established the four news. Yeah. Religion was uh, no good. They, they tried to discontinue that, but of course now they've changed that policy completely. Yeah. Um, but I was very shocked by that, I have Did to say. Did you personally
0: been affected or didn't approach uh, you? Well,
1: uh, it's like this. We had already signed, my wife and I had already signed a contract Okay. In January '65, mm. which expired in in, in August '66, we didn't know what was going to happen in August '66, of course. Yeah, but it was never our intention to stay on. So we came back to Australia immediately yeah. um, in September '66, and we were not affected personally. No. Okay,
0: that, that's good then. Yeah. But
1: um, I was very interested in Chinese drama, and mm. I still am actually. And I collected books about Peking opera and mm. gramophone records of traditional works and mm-hmm. things like that, yeah. which I took back to Australia, and most of which I still have. Mm. And I wrote a PhD. My PhD was on the rise of the Peking opera. Yeah. But by the end of our stay, all those traditional ones had been abolished. Yeah,
0: so that's amazing. That part of history even is uh, very strange yeah. to people uh, like my age. Yeah, um, they were so fanatical.
1: Years, A lot of those red that's... guards, they were very fanatical, you know, they mm. were rampage round the streets and they were certainly harming and there were some people were driven to suicide i have i know yes including some very distinguished people of course Scholars, and that was terrible many, looking yeah, back on it that was scientists
0: terrible. and academics yep. and, and writers yep, and yeah, right. artists many been uh, persecuted and yeah forced to commit suicide that's i know that yeah, was terrible horrible, but personally
1: I was not affected, okay. and uh, okay. nor was my wife or son. And uh, I, l- I look back on my China experience generally with pleasure. Although mm. I do acknowledge that there were some terrible things happening mm. when we were there.
0: So over the years, I know your interest and your focus on China and is still continuing. And so with this big range of uh, changes, uh, what do you see the, uh, the most striking part of the change with today's China?
1: I think it's much more modern, it's much more prosperous, Mm -hmm. people are more confident, they're still very patriotic, but they're not ideological in the sense that they were in those days. I think they're much more interested in the world as a whole. Mm -hmm. I think they're much more keyed in to uh, what's happening in other parts of the world. And I, I find them much easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. When I say that, I don't want to bag my colleagues because some of them are still my friends mm-hmm. all these years later. Yeah. And, I mean, they were good people and I think they're still good people and mm. I still like them and I still admire them. Mm. But the young people of today, they have a very different interests. They're much more focused on their personal careers. Mm. I think they are also interested in in the country as a whole, but they're not really expected to sacrifice their personal interests to nearly the same extent as was the case in in the old days. They go abroad much more uh, and they want to go abroad much more and they think of the West as being a very, very good place some of the students that i 've had, for example, they like Western culture a great deal in Beijing now, there is a lot of Western operas and plays and concerts mm. performed and at a very high standard Now that was not the case in those days yeah in those days, um, they were taught to despise Western culture as being bourgeois, even Beethoven, for example, although the Beethoven Ninth was performed in in Beijing in one thousand nine hundred and fifty nine to yeah. celebrate the tenth anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic, but by the time I was there, you didn't have anything like that, and so that's a very, very big change that's coming up.
0: I noticed from the beginning you struck the Beijing Beijing外国大学, the tone so well. So tell us uh, something about your your experience uh, in learning Chinese language itself.
1: Well, I began to learn a little bit in Canberra Mm. in the 50s, but um, it was very classically oriented and the oral side was not emphasized, not mm-hmm. at all. Then when I went to England and I lived in Cambridge for a couple of years, I continued to learn, I could um, read historical texts. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, that's classical term... Chinese. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I did them quite well. That's even harder. Mm, yeah. I could do them, but my oral Chinese was not good. But when I went to live in China... I started to learn oral Chinese, at the same time as I was teaching English. Mm -hmm. And although I never really got um, as good as I should have, considering how long I've been learning it, I did improve after a while, mainly through living in China, though, and through studying as well. I mean, I did do quite a lot of study.
0: So this immersion, uh, long duration of the immersion uh, experience. I mean, also, American Foreign Service also named Chinese together with Arabic, Japanese, as most difficult language to learn for Westerners. That's right. So do you have any uh, suggestions for uh, our Australian students if they want to learn Chinese? Well, Many people th- are
1: frightened, actually. Then They feel that's too hard. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, they do find it uh, daunting mm. because the characters are so different and it's, uh, the structure of the language is so different. My advice would be to stick at it to try and um, get into situations where you're speaking Chinese. And of course, if you can go to China, that's a good thing to do. But it's very difficult to answer that question really because, I mean, it is difficult. Gee, there's no two ways around it. Yeah. And it's very different from English. But I must say, I find an inspiration in the way Chinese people can speak and write English so well. I know. Maybe it's easier than the other way around. I'm not sure. But I think it may be the atmosphere of the um, social situation mm. as well as which is more difficult and which is less difficult because the fact is that that in Australia... We don't really um, expect to speak Chinese. For example, my students in China, they expect to speak English and they welcome the opportunity to speak English, to improve their English. The courses that I do Mm. have all been in English and also they were in the 60s too, by the way. I remember we taught in English and we expected the uh, students to speak in English. They wrote their essays in English. Mm. Uh, And that's a very good practice, I think and our colleagues did the same it's not mm. just us and i think that's a good thing to do in australia too
0: yeah if people feel enthusiastic about that uh, yeah. culture, language yeah. then they just commit their time to do it i think that's so. the only way yeah
1: you use the word enthusiasm yeah, and that's i right. think that's a very good thing
0: and we talk about chinese for most people, Westerners or the rest of a few Chinese, as one people like, uh, like a Jackie Chan or <laughs> those people, the image. But actually, Chinese uh, there are so many different groups of people and different groups of uh, kind of uh, cultures uh, mm. there. So, can you also tell us something about your observations, your thoughts about a uh, different type of Chinese people?
1: Can I begin at the beginning? I did my thesis. Mm in Cambridge on the Uyghurs of the Tang Dynasty. Hmm. You know, the Uyghurs helped the Tang emperors to suppress the An Lushan Rebellion. That's right. That went from 755 to 763. Hmm. And when I went to China, I was already interested in the history of the ethnic minorities. Mm. At first, you know, in the 60s, it was impossible to go to those places. Okay. Impossible to go to the ethnic areas. Yeah. In the 80s, it became much more possible, and I visited a lot of ethnic areas. I went to Tibet first in 1985. Mm. I went to Xinjiang first yeah. in 1982. Mm. I must admit, I didn't stay long, but I, I recall it very clearly. I went to Turpan, mm. uh, and I went to Ürümqi, and I went to the Minzu and It was then now oh, it's okay. the Minzu Das yeah. yeah university. The Nationalities University. Yeah. I had an invitation to go there, and I did research. I collected a lot of documents, and I actually wrote a, a book in 1985, mm. which explained the whole question of the um, policies and mm. so on. I must admit that I didn't do what you would call field trip. In other words, stay a long, long time among those ethnic minorities. But I did get to know quite a lot about the policy and the various aspects, like the economy, like their um, their religion, mm. you know, their their family life, their mm. society, their history, their politics, of course. And one thing that's really important, and that's the demography. And I wrote a few, a, a couple of books um, about that, and some articles. And, and I've continued to expand on that um, over the years. My first visit to an ethnic area was actually to Xinjiang. Mm. That was in 1982. Yeah. But I've revisited Xinjiang several times since then. Mm. I went to first to Yunnan in 1985, mm. working in Chengdu mm. for a few months, and I made a trip to Sin- to Tibet. You could fly from Chengdu to Lhasa. You still can, of course. Yeah, yeah. But now you can do more easily from other places as well. There was no railway in those days. Yeah. And I did. I went there and I went by myself. I looked around. I, I wasn't controlled or anything like that. You know, this question of having people with you, there's yeah. two sides of it, I think. One is the negative, and that is that you're being controlled. You yeah. know, you're being taken to places yeah. that your guide may want you to go to, and yeah. you're being sort of fed a line, so to speak. Yeah. But, of course, the other side of it is that they do the organisation. They take you to places that are interesting. I did do that in Tibet a couple of times, as well as that first trip. Mm. Um, I'm very interested in Tibetan theatre, for example, and I've written a, quite a bit about that. Yeah. I asked my guide if we could, um, you know, find some appropriate um, theatres and on, which we did. But, you know, I, I would like to add on that mm. that the first time I went to Lhasa, mm. I came across some theatre performances purely by accident. Mm. And I also came across a, a troupe mm. purely by accident, a Tibetan ah. troupe. I simply asked people, you know, where is this trip? I heard about this trip. Yeah. I asked people, can you tell me where to go? And I went down the back streets and mm. I found this trip. It was very interesting. I interviewed the manager of it and I interviewed the members of it.
0: Or in Chinese. Uh, in Chinese. Yeah. This was in Chinese. Yeah.
1: Uh, because I couldn't speak Tibetan, unfortunately. I still can't I'm, yeah. I'm, and that's uh, a pity. I know. Most
0: people can speak English. Yeah. That's right Tibet and they couldn't and... speak English. Mm.
1: But I, I did get some very valuable material which I've written up into publications So I just see there's a downside and an upside in all that. I think in the end it's better to um, be not
0: controlled. I think that's very nice perspective. I also recall my memory, you, you have ever uh, written a book about a Western's image about I China. I yes. In terms of this cross-cultural communication, I, f- I found there's deficit and surplus. Like a Chinese at this stage, then understand more uh, about the Western and the rest mm. of the world. But on the other way around, the understanding and the interest is much l- lower. How how do you comment on this? Well,
1: I think that's a very good point. The way I see it, there's a long historical trend which has made the West more dominant politically and economically um, since about the 17th to 18th centuries, and especially the 19th century when the colonialism became so fashionable. But I think that things are changing now and I think they're changing quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I'll say the US or the West is in decline, Mm -hmm. but I do think that the balance Mm -hmm. of forces and economy and politics and and ideas between the West on the one hand and China on the other has changed and is changing quite rapidly in China's favour. I think that there are political ramifications behind all this. I mean, I think the West has done some good work on on China, and I I don't apologise for a lot of that. But I do think that there are certain biases, you know, that are very difficult. It's influenced not only by China, by the realities of China, although it has them, of course, Mm. but it's also influenced by the person who's looking. Yeah. You know, and I think that really can't be ignored. I mean, I remember myself, I'll take myself as an example, I remember having this very um, rooted prejudice. I mean, what else can one call it? Prejudice against China mm. when I went there first in the 60s. And I remember seeing things and thinking, you know, well, that, that's not according to the model that I thought you know, I was brought up with and gradually changing my mind Mm -hmm. and saying, well, you know, you've got to see things in other people's terms as well as in your own. Having all said all that, I don't apologise for being Western. Mm. I don't apologise for Western culture. I think Western culture has produced some wonderful things. At the same time, I think that we should try and see other cultures in their own terms Mm. and with their own eyes and try and be sensitive to other cultures and try and appreciate them. I really think we should try and appreciate other people's cultures, other people's way of looking at things. And I must say that my experience tells me that in China there's plenty to appreciate.
0: Can you also... uh Tell us about your experience. I remember in 2014, yep. uh, Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping yeah. yeah came to visit Australia yeah. and uh, in the Parliament and he gave a speech. Also, he gave you a medal of um, um, to add recognition about your contribution to, to China as a distinguished
1: foreign expert. Yeah, I got they call a friendship medal, a yeah. Jiang. Yeah. Friendship award um, earlier in 2014. But then I got a special contribution yeah. award the next year, in 2015. But uh, when he came, he referred to my getting this friendship award earlier the same year. Uh, and he mentioned me in his speech. And I was really, really honored by that. I, that he should notice <laughs> what I'd done, I thought it was a very, very great honor. I couldn't get over it. And uh, after that, I went to meet him.
0: Yeah. Okay. And that was nice. Yeah, so your impression as a national leader, as a, a global leader, uh, uh, w- what sense of a feeling you, you have on him uh, the, t- in terms of a direction of the country?
1: I'd sum it up by saying he seems to me to be a very dignified leader, very purposeful leader. There's a certain charisma that mm. you, you, you sort of sense. I mean, it's difficult to explain. I happen to support his anti-corruption campaign Mm -hmm. because I think ordinary people are very fed up with a a lot of corruption in China. Yeah. I mean, I admit that there are dangers in this anti-corruption campaign because well, I mean, you, maybe you catch too many people and, and you, you make people frightened. And I think that is, that is a non-trivial issue. Mm. But I mean, overall, you take the plus and minuses. I think it is worth and it's, I think it's necessary to do that. Mm. And so I support that.
0: In your recommendation, what's the most interesting three themes about China or Chinese study?
1: I would say begin with a an appreciative and a sensitive attitude towards it. I think enthusiasm is really important. I think that in the study of China, contemporary China is very important, but I also think China's history is very interesting and very important. Now, I know that's a big ask that people should say, take an interest in both contemporary and the past, but I think it is important. And I think the past will strengthen interest and knowledge and understanding of the present.
0: That's Colin McCarris. Emeritus Professor at Griffiths University, and you have been listening to Asia Rising. You can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter, at Latrobe Asia. I'm Dr. Yang Bin Chen, and thanks for listening.